you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. You can stand with me. We're going to read. And I'm excited about tonight's lesson. How many of you want to know how to be rich? And I, I thought that we would have to sell tickets when I sent out the text of what our topic was tonight. How to be rich. Anybody that's not here that you see that's a friend in the church, you need to text them tonight and say, Don't you want to be rich? <laughs> Don't you want to be rich? I, th- I thought for sure uh, there would be just a full house tonight. But I'm thankful for each and every one that are here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it says, Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And listen to this in verse 2. It says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Somebody say that with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus opens up with this shocking statement to his day. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. He continues and says, Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The King James Version says they shall be filled. And so tonight I want to talk to you about how to be rich. And uh, I believe that before we leave here, God wants to speak to each and every one of our hearts. That's what I love about teaching the Word of God is is the same message can speak to each and every one of us in a unique um, way to the circumstances and situations of our life. And that's, that's what I want us to pray before we sit down and get into the lesson, is that God would just talk to our hearts. Can we do that right now? Lord, we invite you into this room, God. We invite your presence in, God, to do a work in our spirit, God. Let your word speak life, speak hope, speak meaning to us, God. Let each and every one of us walk out of here with a little clear vision of how we can be rich toward you. In the name of Jesus, we pray it, and we believe that you're going to do it because you're a good God, and everybody said in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, Everyone wants to be rich, amen? Anybody here who doesn't want to be rich? I mean, do you ever look at, at people who have billions of dollars and be like, man, it must be such a hassle to manage all that money? I saw um, a video the other day, and I, I posted about it. Y'all might have seen it on Facebook, where um, there were all these cars pulled over on the on the highway because one of these armored trucks, um, the door flew open in the back, and money was flying out everywhere. <laughs> I got plumb excited in my spirit. I said, Lord, let it happen to me. <laughs> Jesus, I decree and declare one of these Brinks trucks to... The door handles, we pray against them, Lord, that they fail. I'm ready, Lord. Can you imagine? And, and here's the sad part. I, I didn't plan on talking about this, but it's just family tonight, so we'll just talk. Um, here's the sad part. is Somebody went down the road videoing everybody, and they got all their license plates, and everybody who got money had to give it back. I said, not today, devil. <laughs> Everybody wants to be rich, amen? We've all had a friend or family member who pulled us aside and let us in on the next big thing. If you invest in this stock, I've got the, the next hottest uh, uh, direct sales marketing uh, program that you need to get in on the floor. I remember my dad 
when he was pastoring in San Antonio, we'd have evangelists, and every evangelist had the next new best thing. And, and God bless my dad. He loved to sign up for those things, man. He, I mean, sold everything from, from plexus to, um, well, just about every kind of shake that you can shake a stick at. And um, all of these things, they, it's the next big get-rich-quick scheme. Anybody ever had, you know, when somebody friends you on Facebook from high school, it means that they just joined direct marketing. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> but there, there's something about the allure of being rich that causes us to check our brains at the door sometime. A while back, BuzzFeed shared a few of the greatest get-rich schemes, uh, uh, get-rich-quick schemes in history. And uh, of, the, of the ten or so that they shared, one of my favorites was a man named Vis, uh, Victor Lustig, who um, just after World War II read in a newspaper that, um, that the, the uh, Eiffel Tower in Paris was in dire need of repair and the government was struggling to keep it up. And so he got an idea and he wrote governmental letters and posed as a government official and wrote all of the scrap metal uh, companies in Paris and let them bid on the Eiffel Tower. And he sold the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. Or at least they thought he did because he collected the money and disappeared only to come back and do it again. It's a pretty, pretty get-rich-quick scheme right there. Um, then there was a man named David Phillips. Some of you will appreciate this. In 1999, David Phillips re- realized that the return on a mail-in uh, rebate outweighed the price of healthy choice pudding snacks. So he bought 12,150 cups of pudding spending $3,500, and sent in the rebate, netting over a million frequent flyer miles from American Airlines. And to avoid suspicion, he claimed that he was stocking up for Y2K, and since all the pudding was donated to charity, he also netted a hefty tax break. This man puddinged his way to world travel. The proof is in the pudding, right? People are never so creative as when they're trying to get rich. When we were kids, we all wanted to be rich, didn't we? Amen? I used to dream I'm going to be a basketball player, not because of my superior athletic ability or my height, for sure, because I thought, well, if I could be a basketball player, I could be rich, or maybe I'll act in movies, or or maybe I'll do something. I I didn't think about being a preacher to be rich, just to let you know. And so... Um, most of us know someone who is rich, don't we? In fact, we tell ourselves that if we were rich, we would do better things with our life, right? We would be healthier. We would give more. We would help people out. I would do this. I would do that. Some of you, I'm not reading anybody's mail tonight, but you might have tried to make a deal with God about the lottery. Lord, if you'll just let me win that lottery, I'll give you most of the money. Everybody, somebody say everybody, everybody wants to be rich. How many of you here tonight are filthy rich? Amen. If you, if you raise your hand, don't forget tithing is at the end of service. <laughs> everybody wants to get rich. Nobody wants to stay poor, but at least some people know how to have fun with being poor. I, I found a few poor jokes, um, and, and they, they tickled me, so I thought I would share them, is... One guy said we were so poor we had walked down the street with one shoe on. And people would ask, did you lose a shoe? And we'd say, no, I found one. 
Another guy said we were so poor we would eat cereal with a fork just to save milk. Someone else was so poor that she opened a Gmail just so she could eat the spam. Another one was so poor that they'd go to KFC just to lick other people's fingers. Another one said they were so poor they'd wave around a popsicle and call it air conditioning. You see, poverty is something that some of us have experienced. We feel like, and you know, when I was a kid, I thought we were poor because we had to put things on layaway. Anybody ever use layaway? And, and, and I, it's one of my worst memories as a child because I hated shopping. And we go shop for hours and I didn't even get to take it home. Mom put it on layaway. When will I see that again? I don't know. Maybe next year. We have no idea. Mom would say, well, we can't buy it all right now. There's four of you kids, so we're going to put it on layaway, and we'll just put a little bit at a time. And we would stop by Solo Serve every week until school started and pay down the layaway. I thought, man, one day maybe we'll be rich enough just to take those clothes home right away. <laughs> but poverty is something that we're all familiar with in one way or another, and it was a common topic in the life and ministry of Jesus, as well as in the New Testament. The culture surrounding the New Testament was a culture of haves and have-nots. Beggars and poor people were common fixtures in the narrative of Scripture. They were often disabled or dysfunctional in some way, and they literally lived on the mercy and welfare of other people because they were unable to help themselves out of their circumstances. They were widows and orphans and people who found themselves in dire need with little ability to change their circumstance. In fact, in this crowd of people that had gathered to hear Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount, there probably 99% of them had passed the weak and beggarly people that Jesus was referring to on the way to hear Jesus teach. That's how common it was. And so, in Matthew 5, Jesus begins to teach about his upside-down kingdom. So contrasted with the world's way of looking at things. And it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the three-chapter message that turned religious understanding upside down. And the Bible says in Matthew 5, 1, that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples come to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus' opening line grabbed everyone's attention. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of all the things that they thought about poor people, I'm not just talking about people who made a little less money or people who lived in a smaller house or drove an older model car. Uh, the, the word used there for poor is uh, patakos, in the Greek, which means reduced to beggary, mendicant, poor, or indigent. He is talking about the lowest of the low. He's talking about the people that can't afford bread to eat. They, they beg every day just for their daily bread. They have nothing. In fact, we read in the scripture some of them, like the man who sat outside the gate called beautiful, he couldn't even take himself to beg. Somebody had to take him and set him there every day where he could beg for alms. That is who Jesus is talking about, the patakas. And, and these were the beggars that lined the streets, who sit outside the temple, the people who depend completely on others from day to day. 
You might recognize a few of them in Scripture. Uh, Jesus refers to one of them as the widow who came and gave her last two mites. She was essentially a homeless woman who had two copper coins. And she comes and throws them into the treasury and gives them to God. And Jesus calls her by this word, pataka. She, she has nothing, but she's given everything. Then, then there is Abraham and, and Lazarus. Uh, the story of Abraham and Lazarus. Abraham's the rich man. And Lazarus sits outside of his gate. And uh, he has no comfort. He has no food. He begs. Um, and, and his only comfort in life is that the dogs come and lick his sores. He has no, no income for medical relief. Just dogs licking on him is the best thing he has going in his life. I don't mean to offend any dog lovers, but that's not the best thing to enjoy about life. He was... Patakas, he was poor. Jesus immediately, in his opening line, drew the parallel between the poor everyone already knew about and the poor that few people knew about. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or the spiritually poor. Blessed are the spiritually indigent. Reduced to beggary. The spiritual mendicants, the spiritual poor. For they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus lived in a day of great, rich spiritual heritage. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the scribes among the Jewish people. There was a lot of religion and a rich heritage. But Jesus says, blessed are the spiritually poor. The people who have nothing spiritually, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a shocking statement. Because people didn't associate those kind of people with blessing. They didn't associate the poor with anything to do with blessing. And this Jesus comes along and he begins to draw a parallel between them. And he says, those who are spiritually poor, the poor in spirit, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. This was the kingdom that John the Baptist had been preaching about. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? Is near. It's coming, right? He said, make the crooked way straight. Get everything fixed because the kingdom is on its way. He was the messenger that came before Jesus. John was preaching, the kingdom is near. But when Jesus arrives, Jesus said, the kingdom is here. And it isn't in those who think that they are spiritually rich who will inherit it. But it's the spiritually poor who will inherit it. I know some of you are looking like, what is he talking about? I'm getting there. But there's several things that are just shocking about this statement. In fact, when I was praying this morning... Um, just the, the, the word spiritual poverty kept speaking to me. And I'm like, man, we need to get people out of spiritual poverty. But that isn't what I found at all. We need to get people into spiritual poverty. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hang on with me. Here's what's shocking about it. Because blessing and poverty aren't often associated with one another. When we hear the term blessed, we think generally of what we have, not what we don't have. How are you doing? Blessed and highly favored. My car just got repoed. I'm blessed. <laughs> no. We think, we see somebody with a new car. Oh, the Lord is blessing. The Lord is blessing. Right? 
Somebody moves into a new home or wears a, a, a new suit. Yeah, the Lord has been blessing. And we associate blessings with what we have, not with what we don't have. Jesus was setting the agenda and the expectations of his ministry in the first few lines of this message. The first four statements, we read them in our text, Jesus makes are regarding different types of poverty. Listen, let's read it together right quick. He opened his mouth, taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Somebody say that's spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who mourn. That is a poverty of peace. They have a peace poverty. Right? He says, blessed are the meek. They don't have the earth, but they shall inherit there. They have a power poverty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't have it. They have a righteousness poverty. See, Jesus opens up and he starts talking about the blessings in what you don't have. Jesus was revealing that through his ministry, those who don't have can and will have. This was the underlying theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It surfaces again in Matthew 7. Later on in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the have-nots again. He says this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. What will? The thing that you don't have. He says, seek and you will find. Seek for what? The thing that you don't have. God, right? He says, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. He said, listen, listen. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread? Why, why would a son ask for bread? Because he doesn't have it. Unless he's just being selfish, right? He says, if you have a son who's hungry and asks for a bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Why would you ask God for these things? Because you need them. Because you recognize that you need them. That's why you ask. Anybody ever had to ask for anything? You started a new job and they just threw you in the fire. You didn't know what you were doing. And you just were doing it wrong until finally you, you had to humble yourself and say, you know what, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. Can somebody please help me? Why did you ask? Because you needed something, right? There was something they had that you didn't have. And so this was the mission of Jesus, is to deliver to those who don't have so that they can have and will have. Don't believe me? Jesus stood when he comes out of the wilderness fasting in the synagogue and he reads from the scriptures in Isaiah that says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach what? The gospel to who? To the poor. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What is good news to poor people? I'll tell you what good news to poor people is. Pull up to the projects, walk up and knock on someone's door and say, you don't have to live this way anymore. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to fear anymore. You don't have to wonder if you're going to make it anymore. All the things that you don't have, now you can have and you do have. Jesus says the Spirit of God is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the good news to those that are poor. 
to set at loose them that are captive. What do they pour? They have no freedom. They, they have a freedom poverty. And Jesus says, I've come to give those who have no freedom, freedom. I've come to bind up. The Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of God has anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted. What they, ha- they don't have any healing. But he said, God has sent me so that they can have what they don't have. That may not be powerful to you, but that's powerful to me. I mean, Jesus opens this message and he just turns it all upside down. Because we think, we think that if we have the spiritual heritage, we think that if we have the right pedigree, we think that if we know enough about God and we have enough knowledge and enough good works and enough of this and enough of that, that we can somehow, it can mount up to the measure that which we can inherit the things that God has for us. But Jesus just turns it all upside down on the Jewish culture of his day. And he opened his mouth, and the first words that come out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Man, what a statement. I didn't intend to preach, but man, I feel preach up in here. Y'all pray for me. Jesus was making a radical statement that the blessed life doesn't mean having it all. It doesn't mean having it all figured out. Jesus was saying that people who are really blessed are those who realize that spiritually they are in desperate need. Not those who think that they have it all figured out. Not those that think that they have a direct phone line to heaven. There are some people so spiritual that, that the five-fold ministry can't even help them. A pastor can't tell them nothing because God talks to them directly, right? And, and, and they know more about the Bible. That, that's not the kind of people who inherit the kingdom. The Bible says that it's those who have recognized and have understood that there is a spiritual poverty within me. I don't think I have it all. Here's the thing about poor people. They know that they're poor, right? They know they're poor. They know that they have needs. They know. And so here's the first step to becoming spiritually rich is we need to see our poverty. Now, you didn't, you didn't expect me to talk about poverty tonight. But that's the first step to becoming spiritually rich because Jesus opens it up and he says that people who recognize that spiritually they have nothing to offer God, they can inherit all that God has. They can inherit the kingdom of heaven. They can inherit everything. I feel like I'm missing with people tonight. It's so quiet in here. The second shocking thing about this opening line is that Jesus says spiritual poverty is the key to receiving the kingdom of God. Because you can't get rich if you think you're already rich. Hear me out. Hear me out. If, if you already think you're rich, people do this all the time. They stop short of receiving more because they are satisfied with what they already have. The greatest barrier in, of blessing in your life, to blessing in your life, can very well be what you already have. In other words, I, I have enough. I, it's like the man in the scripture who says that, that I have enough. I, I've built bigger barns. I've, I've expanded. I'm going to just sit back and enjoy life. 
And he says, you fool, do you not know that this night your soul is required of you? He thought he had enough. And the biggest barrier to what God has for you next can very well be what God gave you last. And so this is why the Jews miss Jesus, is they thought they were spiritually rich. We are the children of Abraham. We believe there's one God. I believe that's why James said, you believe there's one God? The devils believe there's one God. You're not as special as you think you are. The Jews, they thought that they knew where the Savior would come from. I preached about it just a few days ago that they said, can, can, can this even be him because he's from Galilee? Can any good thing come from there? This can't be Jesus. He can't be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. They thought that they had it all figured out. They thought they had the heritage. They thought that they had the covenant. They thought that they had the promise. And they were spiritually rich in their own eyes. But understand this, that blessings flow into areas of acknowledged needs. You can't receive what you don't recognize that you need. Jesus used the word poor to set the stage for what followed. Jesus puts everybody in the crowd in the shoes of the beggar. Only they weren't needing bread. Their need was spiritual. There is nothing so humbling as to have to ask for help. As recognizing that you don't have what it takes. That what you need can only be met by someone who has what you don't have. And that's what the poor had going for them. Because God can't bless what we can't admit that we need. If we think that we're righteous enough, he said your self-righteousness is as filthy rags on your best day. On your best day. On your most righteous day. You are not nearly righteous enough for the holy, pure, one true God. On your best day. You can't even come close to deserving the grace that God has offered you. On your best day, you don't deserve one drop of the blood of the cross. On your best day, on your most well-behaved day, on your most spiritual day, there is nothing that you have to offer God that would have been deserving of Him laying down His life. And so what we really need is not to look at how spiritually rich we are. He says, blessed, happy, fulfilled, satisfied are those who recognize that they have nothing to bring to the table. That they just need God to meet their need. They need God to help them be who they're supposed to be. They need God to help them fulfill their calling and ministry. They need God for every day of their life. Blessing flows into areas of acknowledged need. 1 Peter 5.5, God resists, opposes the proud, but does what? Gives grace to those who are humble. God opposes the proud. He's like the guy with the fishing line on that State Farm commercial. You almost had it. Your pride got in the way. There was a promise and a blessing. You almost got it. God said, no, I'm not giving that to people who are proud. Because understand... That, that pride gets you nowhere with God. The Bible says he resists and opposes the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. And so um, this is why 
Hear me tonight. This is why it's so important to pray specifically for areas of need in our life. And not to come to God and say, God, I don't need anything. I did that one time and God convicted me. And it was actually in a time of great need. A great need was in my life. I was at a young minister's uh, meeting with, with some older mentor pastors. And they're going to go around the room and pray for everybody. And uh, there was all kind of carnage going on in family and home and church. And, and uh, I, I was in desperate dire need. My mom was, was fighting cancer at that time. And they said, we're going to go around and pray for all your needs. And I thought, i got nothing to pray for. What? I sat there for a second. Because, I mean, look, I had already told them we had already been praying about that. I said, i got nothing to pray for. Don't ever say that to God. Because God will begin to unfold to you all the things you really do need prayer for. And about two, three minutes after I kind of said that in my heart, God started showing me some stuff that he needed to deal with on a spiritual level in my own life that I hadn't been paying attention to because I thought I had everything that I needed. We need to learn to pray specific in areas of our life. We need to voice our recognition in the needs in our life and realize that God has everything that we need. He has everything that we need. That's the beauty of being a beggar. Is not being consumed with the idea that I have what I need. A beggar spiritually can come to God and say, God, I'm just here by your grace. If I make it today, it's because you love me and you're graceful to me. If I get through another week, Lord, it's, be- it's not because I've done anything on my own. It's because you've loved me and you've given me mercy And you've given me grace. You see, blessing flows into the places where I deeply acknowledge and recognize that I'm in need. And so James tells us, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. What we do a lot of times is rather than ask is is we complain and then we try to find ways to fix things ourselves. A relationship that's broken, we, we... We kind of whine about it, but then we try to fix it ourselves. We try to find our own way to do it, right? Am I preaching to anybody in the house? We try to we try to make things happen. And James says, the reason that you don't have is because you're not asking. And I believe the reason people don't ask is because they feel like they've got it handled. Anybody can be honest and raise your hand and never say, I didn't pray for something because I thought I had it handled. I'm not going to bother God with that. I got this one, God. I'm a child of the king. I got this one, Jesus. Like, no. Don't you hear what he's saying? He's saying you have nothing. Nothing. Jesus in his flesh said, I can do nothing. I can do nothing of myself. Except for what the Father shows me. I can say nothing except for what the Spirit of God does. If Jesus can't do it, you can't do it either. Lord, help us. Because we think we can do this. We've got this. And we'll take the big stuff to God. But we don't ask God for things that we genuinely need because we think that we can supply that need. And so, God doesn't answer prayers that prop up our pride and flesh. Because the next thing that James said, he says, you have not because you ask not. 
And he says, and you have not because you ask amiss. Sometimes we ask just because we want stuff. And we come to Jesus with a Christmas list and say, Lord, it would be real nice if you would do this and this and this and this and this. And none of it glorifies God. And none of it is in God's will. And so God does not answer prayers that prop up our pride and our flesh. But listen to this. He gives grace to those who humble themselves before God and who ask God to take their life, to take their circumstances. Those who cast their cares on Jesus because He cares for them. Those who recognize that the reason I need to pray is because every good and perfect gift comes down from God above. Not not 90% and God lets you do 10%. Not that way. Not 50-50. Every good and perfect gift. That's why the Bible says that we should take every... Worry about nothing but... Pray about how many things? Everything. We should learn that we are just beggars outside the temple saying, Lord, if I'm going to have anything from you today, it's because you're good. It's because you're gracious. It's not because I have anything to offer you. It's not because I've done anything to deserve or earn it. Lord, I come to you because your word says it. And I believe it. And I need it from you. The first step toward God is recognition of your sin and spiritual need. We live in a day where it's not popular to preach about the sin nature. Can I get an amen? It's not real popular to get up and say, listen, you're more depraved than you ever thought you were. You guys are terrible. Left to yourself, you will devolve into a human train wreck very shortly. It's not popular preaching. You don't pick up books. Your worst life now. That would sell. <laughs> All you have to do is have one page in it is, is don't trust Jesus. <laughs> Your worst life now. No, that doesn't sell these days. But, but listen, hear me out. Is the bad news about our sinful state is what makes the gospel good news. The bad news about who we really are and how deficient we really are is what makes the gospel really good news. Anybody hear me? Y'all understand that? Because if it's really true that I can't save myself and that I can't do anything to earn the love of God and to deserve the blood of Jesus and the name of Jesus being spoken on my... If there's nothing that I can do, that makes the good news really good news. Because that means that Jesus came and made a way for me and that I don't have to depend upon myself. It makes it really good news that the bad news is that I'm lost and undone without Him. Because He came. Because He died on the cross. Because He was buried in the grave. And because He rose again, now I have hope. Now there's, there's a pathway for me. Now I can inherit that even though I'm poor. Even though I come from nothing, even though I have nothing, even though I'm just an indigent on the side of the street, homeless in the eyes of God, even though I've got nothing to offer anybody and I'm just here looking for an answer. Because He loves me and because He gave His life for me, it makes the good news really good news. There are two pillars of the gospel. And I didn't come up with this, but I love it. And I I have a hard time not preaching about it every time. The two pillars of the gospel are this, is that I am much more sinful 
or spiritually poor than I ever thought I was. If you really start digging down into your, your uh, motivations and your choices and why you do the things you do and why you run after the things you run after, we are incredibly depraved. We really are. And so one of the pillars of the gospel is I'm way more sinful than I ever thought I would be or could be. But the other side of that, it's, if you can imagine, it's like a trampoline. That's the downward. But here's the trampoline is that the other revelation is that if that's true, God is much more graceful than I ever imagined he could or would be. So the more that I come into the conclusion that I really am lost and undone without Jesus, the more I can see the beauty of the grace, the mercy and the love of God. And this is why we need preachers who will preach against sin. This is why we need preachers who aren't afraid in this day and hour to, to just tell you the truth that you're not all you cracked up to be. Just because you look nice and you smell good and you've got a house and a home and a car. Each and every one of us wear the same kind of flesh. We have the same kind of sin nature. And without Jesus, there's none of us that are good. There isn't one that would be a little better than another. All, all of us are level at the foot of the cross because none of us have anything to offer God to deserve His grace and mercy. And so the first step to becoming spiritually rich is I need to see my poverty. I need to know. I need to be fully aware that when I walk away from God... Now, you, you naturally know this. You know this because when you stop praying, your thought life changes, doesn't it? When you stop seeking after God and... You slip out of church and you start missing for a while. All of a sudden, old feelings start coming back up. Things you haven't dealt with in a while. That person you used to be, that old man starts peeking his head out of the grave and saying, what's going on, right? We start reverting back to old ways. But the closer we get to God, the further that seems to be. And so we need, we need to first see our poverty if we're going to be spiritually rich. Second, we need to continually trust His provision. Would you say that with me? We need to continually trust His provision. In Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to the Laodicean church because they had grown lukewarm in their faith. Let's put it simply, they weren't pursuing God passionately. They had backed off of their first works, and works is the word that Revelation 3 uses. It says, in your works... I perceive that you're neither hot nor cold. You're doing it, but you're not really doing it with any passion. You're doing church stuff. You're still serving in the same ministry you used to be serving in, but you ain't serving like you used to serve. You're not serving with the heart and the spirit that you used to serve. He said, I, I know thy works. I know thy works. And that thou art neither hot nor cold. You haven't given up on it completely. But neither are you pursuing God and working for God the way that you used to. He says, I, I see that you're hot. You're neither hot nor cold. And so he said, I will spew you out of my mouth. He said, I'm not going to have it. <laughs> and, and here's why. Here's why they grew spiritually cold, or, or spiritually lukewarm, rather. This is why. So they're, they're still doing Christian stuff. They're still showing up to prayer meeting. They're still going to church. They're still coming on Sunday. They're still serving in the ministry. They're still ushering and teaching. They're still doing what they do, but they're doing it. With a lack of passion, right? Here's why. Revelations 3.17, he says, For you say, I am rich, 
mean, I could just stop right there. That's the problem. The reason you're lukewarm is because you think that you got something. He says, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Listen to it. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And listen to God's response. He says, you don't realize that you are wretched. You are pitiable. You are poor. You are blind. And you are naked. They thought that they were rich and needed nothing. They enjoyed enough of the blessings of the past that they had come to the conclusion that they had received everything they needed to make it from here forward. Their language reveals their real issue. They they said, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Their language reveals the real underlying issue. They figured that God had done enough for them that they could take over from here on out. They were saying, okay, God, we've got it from here. We we figured it out. We know you gave us a little push with the whole baptism of the Holy Ghost thing. You you got us clean from sin, but God, we got it from here. You, you, You just throw us out of the nest and we'll soar, Jesus. Like, we got this. Don't worry yourself, God. We got Monroe covered. The church is here. We're good. You know, we, we got it. <laughs> we can pay our own way. We're rich now. I remember when I, when I became an adult and I finally had some money and I went out to eat with mom and dad. It's okay. I got it now. Y'all raised me. Y'all did good. I can pay for my own now. My dad said, you're crazy. Give, give me that bill. My dad pays for everybody. Don't go out. I don't, now, don't y'all go look for him and seek him out and say, I heard you pay for everybody to go eat. My whole life, Dad wanted to take the check at the table. It didn't matter how big it was. I'll pay for everybody. I told my dad, oh, I got that. I got it. I got it. You don't need to do it. To this day, if he comes and visits here, he's going to try to pay for my meals. And I'm like, Dad, you did good. You raised me right. There's money in the bank. I can pay for this. I can do this. We get this sense of pride that tells us, we've got it from here. You've done enough. Thank you, Jesus. But we got this. We don't need to rely on you through a life of prayer and fasting anymore. We know how to do ministry. We don't need to seek your will anymore. Lord, your will is clear. Go, go and teach. We're going to teach, Jesus. We got it from here. We're good. We can pay our own way. We don't need anything more from you. They no longer were spiritually poor in their own view. And so they were in danger of losing their place in the upside-down kingdom of God because God's kingdom doesn't work that way. That's not how God's kingdom works. Everything comes through and by His Spirit. And so they were no longer spiritually poor. They saw themselves as rich, but Jesus said, No, 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 no. Actually, you are poor. You're still as poor as the day I pulled you off of the street. You're still as poor as the day I pulled you out of the bar. You're still as poor as the day I pulled you out of addiction and out of your past. You're still as poor as the day that you walked in believing false doctrine. You're still as poor as back then. You say that you're rich. And he says, but I see that you're still poor. They saw themselves as clothed, which represents righteousness. They thought they had a little righteousness of their own now. We don't need yours anymore, God. We know we figured this religious thing out. We, 
we got this whole thing called the Pharisees now. God, we just, we know how to do it. We organized. We have our own righteousness. And he says, you are naked. You're just as unrighteous as the day that I found you. They saw themselves as prosperous. But Jesus saw them as to be pitied. Why, why they stopped needing Jesus and trusted in, in the one who, they stopped trusting in the one who gives the blessings and started trusting in the blessings that they had received is what I'm trying to say. I, I'm getting tongue-tied. But this is what I'm getting at. They started living and loving the blessings rather than the blesser. And because of it, they, they, they started to think that they had arrived. And we don't have to do it, you know, we can kind of look down on new converts because new converts come in hot. You know what I'm saying? They're excited. They're pumped up. When God changes their life, they want to tell all their friends. They want to tell their family. They want to come in and they want to do it all. But we, we kind of sit back sometimes and we say, well, calm down. They'll get back down here to lukewarm level. And what we're really saying is they'll forget. They'll forget. And they'll start thinking they've got a few things figured out. And here's the revelation. I, I didn't come to come after anybody tonight or anything like that. But we need a revelation of how much we need God every single day. Are we redeemed? Yes, we are. Are we righteous? Yes, but only through His righteousness. Are we children of God? Yes, we are the adopted children. Are we full of the Holy Ghost? Yes, we are full of the Holy Ghost. But the moment that we don't think that we need God every day of our life, we have slipped out of spiritual poverty into spiritual delusion. And so, they stopped needing and trusting Jesus for everything. Now listen, listen to Jesus' solution for their spiritual poverty. He says, I counsel for, of you. Listen to what he says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Why? So that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, he says, buy gold from me. Your values, your riches, they need to come from me. White, white garments, get your righteousness from me. Your eyes salve from me. Because you can't see. You can't walk right. You can't live right. You can't have blessings right unless you have Jesus. Can anybody say amen? He says, buy it from me. Get it from me. You're trying to get it from everything else. You're trying to get it from your job. You're trying to get it from your best efforts. You're trying to get it from all these things. But he says, I counsel you to come to me for it. Because I've got what you really need. I've got what you really need to be rich. I've got a life for you of blessing. I've got a life for you of anointing. You can be fruitful and prosperous. But you can't do it on your own. You've got to get it from me. And Jesus points them back to the place that they need to go. The place where they first started, where they recognize, I have nothing. I have nothing. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer, nothing to bring. But only what I have, it comes from you, Jesus. Only what I have, it comes through you, God. And so I'm completely dependent and reliant. So, yes, we need to see our poverty. And second, we need to continually trust His provision. You see, all that glitters is not gold. Their gold couldn't compare to his gold. 
So he counseled them, buy gold from me. Their righteousness couldn't compare to his righteousness. So he said, buy it from me. Their, their eye salve couldn't compare to his. So he said, get it from me. The stuff that you've been wrapped up in, it ain't all that it's cracked up to be. You're not nearly as good as you think you are. Jesus is contrasting his riches with our riches. He's saying that you've been trusting in things that you've acquired and learned. But I have something that will really make you rich. It will really make you rich. And what is it? It's recognizing that I'm poor. So how do you, how do you get rich spiritually? By becoming poor. It's an upside down kingdom. It doesn't make sense. It shocked everybody when Jesus started teaching about it. But how, how do I get rich? I have to first become poor. I have to see my poverty. I have to trust in his provision. And third, the last thing I'm going to say, I'm not going to spend near as much time on this, is we've got to follow his plan. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age, somebody say, that's me. That's me. That's me. We have more things in worldly wealth than probably any other nation. If you make $33,000, $33,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of earners in the world. Somebody say, I'm rich. So you didn't know. You didn't know, but now you know. You're rich. You're rich. He says, as for the riches in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, listen to this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says, listen, this is the plan. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see what Paul is saying to Timothy? He's saying, you're going to have some rich folks in your church. And here's what you need to tell the rich folks. He says, you need to teach them that even though they have a lot of things, that they don't need to be haughty and they don't need to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He says, here's what they need to do is they need to set their hope on a God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Because you might be rich in worldly wealth, but you are spiritually poor. But here's the good news. Blessed are the spiritually poor because they inherit the whole kingdom. Everything that God has can be yours if you can get over your stuff and what you have, your plan, your way, your will. He says, and here's how they do it. They... They are to do good and to be rich in what? Good works. Somebody say good works. So here's what I want to say is that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Somebody say, nobody boasts. Then listen to what he says. He says, you're not saved by works, so nobody can boast. But he said, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ for what? Good works. Somebody say good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but the scripture comes right back immediately. And Paul says, we're not saved by good works, lest any man should boast. But he said, we are created in Christ and we are the workmanship of Christ for good works. God 
has done what he's done in us so that we can do good to others. And so God has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. So if I am rich, if I have been blessed, if God has done some things in my life and given me some things in my life, I am not to trust in the things that God has blessed me with along the way. I am to trust in Him, in the God who richly supplies everything. I've got to see beyond the things that God has given me to the fact that it's God who is behind it all and that I wouldn't have anything without Him and that everything that I have belongs to Him and that He gave it to me so that I can use it for Him. He says they should be rich in good works. So when I do good works, they should point to God not me. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, even said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. He saved you and He brought you from the spiritual gutter so that you could work for Him. But when you really work for Him, people don't say, Man, Brother David's got it going on. They don't say that. They glorify God who, because they remember what you used to be. They remember where you came from. They remember how bad off you used to be. And when you start letting your light shine before men so that they can see your good works, they start glorifying God and saying, man, only God could have taken them and done that with their life. But we're saved to good works. Not only that, it must help others in the way that they need it and not in the way that I want to give it. Acts 10.38, Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus wasn't picking out what he wanted to do. He said, if you're oppressed, I'm going to help you. Wherever there's a need, I'm going to find a way to supply it. Matthew 5.41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, that's in the Beatitudes too. He said, go with them what? The second mile. It's not about you anymore. It's about showing forth these good works so that people will glorify God. And, and, and look, listen to what happens in Hebrews 10, 24. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. He says, we've got to think about how we can spur people on and that we can bring them to church. You know, one of the best things that you can ever do for somebody is get them connected with the church. It's not because I get to preach here, a pastor gets to preach here not because of that. It's because in the church is where lives are changed. It's in the fellowship and in the community of the church. And one of the good works that you're called to is bring people to church. Let's try it this Sunday. (laughs) My good works will glorify God through His church, not apart from His church. God didn't call you to be lone soldiers going out, rogue warriors, black ops, Christian that goes out and sneakily tries to save somebody on the job, but they never get connected to a church. No! He wants you to work in and through the church. Acts 4.33, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. In Acts chapter 4, this is what happens in the church is when God's power works through us all. Not through 40% of us or 20% of us. But when everybody starts letting God use them in good works, there will be no need. There will be no lack in the church. Sometimes I think we, we get scared of book. We want Book of Acts revival, but we don't want to like go sell our property and bring it and lay it on the altar. But look, if everybody would start working for God, it would glorify God and it would meet needs in the church. And so I close with this thought is that, that we 
We need to first see our poverty if we want to be spiritually rich. If you want the life that God really has for you, if you want the life that God has really ordained for you, you need to be rich in good works. You need to see your poverty, trust His provision, and be rich in good works. In First Timothy, uh, Timothy that I read, he says, Thus, when they do that, they store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly. Somebody say truly. Truly life. You want to be rich in your life? Recognize I'm nothing without God. I'm nothing without God. That everything that I have is because of Him and comes from Him. I don't trust in earthly riches, but in His provision. I don't trust in the spiritual blessings that I've received along the way or in the things that I've done and accomplished or how God's ministered through me. I trust in the God who gives richly, supplies everything. And third, I make it my life's mission to help others know that God. And I become rich in good works. And, and this is what Paul said. He said, if they'll, do the, if they'll do that, if they'll do that, they'll lay hold on a life that is truly life. This is truly living. You won't sit back and wonder, is this God real? Will he ever come through? No, this is truly living. You're going to see the work and the power of God displayed. And you will be spiritually rich.